I had to take a different route this morning and drive by the zoo on the way here. Oh. And you know what the topic oh, is. So okay. Sad. This the is going to be very divisive this of issue. The pandas yeah. from Washington generations of children, mm-hmm. you know, had a good feeling about China because of these pandas. Yeah. Why why alienate a yeah. next generation? Of kids and take these pandas away. I mean, and wouldn't you rather do panda diplomacy and send animals around the world to well, be right, friendly yeah. rather than some of the other things that we're doing? Doesn't it seem like it, soft power gone amok? Yeah. I 100% agree. I mean, I kind of feel like this is the most own goal thing you could possibly do in diplomacy is you yank back your furry envoys that have been doing able service for two generations. What I don't is quite the rationale? I mean, you know, you, you're a Chinaologist, Sinologist. You know, there's all kinds of technical reasons. They'll say, well, these pandas are elderly by panda standards. They're supposed to go back. They don't want them dying abroad. Uh, but the reality is <laughs> they, don't they want could. They them dying abroad. They I'm need sorry. to be buried in their home territory. They're nationalistic <laughs> animals. Who I, would... I don't think there's a huge mystery here. I think it's what's exactly as you framed it, which is that at a moment when the U.S. and China can't agree on anything, they can't even figure out a way to keep these pandas here. Biden is finally going to meet with Xi Jinping That's in true. person next week. Yeah. Any chance they can come to a diplomatic resolution of this crisis? No. Low expectations. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. Hey, Evan. Hey, Jane. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. Well, it's one year out from the next election and a few days after this off-year election. And I'd like to start with a campaign ad, a very provocative, I should say, campaign ad from Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who won re-election on Tuesday against Republican Daniel Cameron in deep red Kentucky. This ad is just one shot, focused tightly on a young woman. And I have to say, it's tough to listen to but I want us to listen to it. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. Wow. Yeah. That ad is certainly gut-wrenching. I have to say it's like nothing I've ever seen, honestly, in politics. It's just the most powerful, succinct, clear, and brave thing. I mean, her name's Hadley Duvall, and she played an essential role in this this campaign and in this moment. And she was one of the first people that Andy Bashir thanked um, when he won the re-election to the governorship. And... um, you know, I think what that ad does, though, is it puts the spotlight on, it takes it away from what the Republicans have been trying to do, which is make it a matter of how many weeks someone can um, have a gestation, and puts this focus instead on who makes the decision and whose, whose life does it affect. And you look that young woman in the face and she says, this needed to be my decision. There are 
terrible circumstances sometimes with unwanted pregnancies, and I need options, is what she said. Who makes the decision, Jane? That, in the end, is what our democratic elections are all about. I think it's a reminder that this is real stuff. It's visceral stuff. Too often we treat politics like a televised sporting event. And I think anybody who listens to that ad is reminded in a, in a pretty quick way, what are the actual stakes when people show up to vote? And of course, it certainly highlights the incredible power and continued salience of the abortion issue in our politics ever since that landscape rearranging decision in Dobbs by the Supreme Court last year. Now, this past Tuesday, this race in Kentucky was one of several elections that Democrats won where the issue of reproductive rights played a major role. Ohio, of course, was another in another increasingly red state. So we want to talk looking forward this week, not only about the role of abortion rights in shaping the outcome of the next presidential election, but do issues overall matter? Are we going to look at something more like personalities, party loyalty, the team sports that our politics have become? Is that what's going to prove decisive as we look ahead to a next year in which the biggest personality of all, Donald Trump, is very likely back on the ticket, along with the incumbent president, Joe Biden? But let's dial back, Jane. Overall, not just in Kentucky, how do you feel the issue of abortion and reproductive rights is playing in our politics right now? Are we making too much of the issue, too little? I mean, I, I think it's an incredibly powerful issue that that has the possibility to realign the parties. This has become – if you take a look at the voting – it's a bipartisan issue. Um, and we are seeing there have been now seven states where the question of abortion access has been in some kind of public referenda statewide. And in all seven states, the issue of keeping abortion access legal has overwhelmingly won. And this includes very red states. So it's really flipped the playbook. For years, abortion has been an issue that mobilized the right and got Republican voters out to vote. And it was used very instrumentally that way by the Republican Party, which united many members of the religious right um, and, and organized them to come out and vote on the issue of making abortion illegal. And and what's happened is now that the court has delivered um, in in June of 2022, um, they've kind of they're the dog that caught the bus. And it shouldn't be surprising because surveys have always shown a good majority of people think abortion should be legal. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily they approve of it themselves, but they understand that there are circumstances where people need to and an unwanted pregnancy. And and most people, majorities have favored it. It's been a minority that won, an extreme minority in the court. And um, this is a backlash. You're also seeing a lot of women voters coming out. A, a, more women have been voting than men in these issues. And abortion is among the top issues that they name when they come out. So I think this is a very live issue. I think it's something that will make a big difference in 2024 if I suppose, if, if if the candidates on the Democratic side really embrace it. And that's a question with Biden always. Well, I mean, it he's is. for it, but, but you can, you guys, I mean, as you've seen, there's a certain tentativeness to him, correct? Well, that's one issue. And then, Evan, the other issue, of course, is it's when abortion is actually on the ballot, yeah. right? And I think that is a very interesting question because, first of all, like you look at a, an outcome like in Ohio and 
it seems that the voters are there very specifically to vote on this referendum. It's, it's, I think, a very open question whether that translates at all into more votes for uh, a statewide uh, national candidate. There's an important Senate race there, Democratic incumbent Sherrod Brown, up for re-election in uh, 2024 in addition to the presumed Biden-Trump rematch. What do you think about the translatability, right? Mm. So we've seen victories for abortion rights in states like Kansas or Ohio, where it's specifically on the ballot whether women have access to these services or not. Do you think it translates into the broader context of a federal election where it may or may not be directly relevant? Well, uh, to your point, one of the things that we've seen as an outgrowth of the results in this most recent election is that there are reports of a a scramble now among Democrats to say, how do we get more abortion-related ballot initiatives onto ballots in states that are really tight, places like Arizona, Nevada, Florida, because it turns out that may be the thing that really motivates people to get involved. Look, I'm really interested in a place like Kentucky. What we just saw is kind of a fascinating case study of the sort of combination of personality, persona, and issues. We started today with this incredibly powerful ad that is, I think, perhaps the most eloquent exposition of the stakes of our politics. You know, very often we hear it's, you know, take the GOP debate the other night. It was just the most superficial slinging of mud at one another. This is about the absolute opposite. This is about the stakes. And so you had a case where you had a Democrat running against uh, an incredibly hard set of underlying conditions where it's a, a, a red state that went for Trump overwhelmingly. But look, he 25 points. 25 points. Um, And I think the takeaway from it is, yes, Andy Bashir is good at politics. Yes, he comes from a family. His father, Steve, was the governor for a long time. People do have a positive feeling about it. But in the end, they were very smart to let somebody like Hadley Duvall, after all, define what this election is really about. I'm already hearing, I don't know about you guys, but I'm already hearing people saying, okay, Andy Bashir, run him for president. (laughs) Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, Jane. You know, there was an immediate kind of like reminder that... The Democratic Party does have uh, an interesting bench of younger, talented candidates out there. And yet there's this incredible kind of angst uh, among uh, the Democratic rank and file. Do you think – and Andy Bashir, it should be pointed out, he ran on the issue of re- reproductive rights, but he also ran away That's from right. Joe Biden, uh, which probably is the only way for a Democrat to win statewide in Kentucky. But – what do you think about that, Jane? How much can there be this gap between the leader of the party and his candidates around the country? Well, I mean— Biden, by the way, was happy to take credit, as were, <laughs> as were his uh, officials in the White House for this victory the other day. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is that that I actually spoke to somebody in, in uh, Kentucky who follows politics closely and said— they think Andy Bashir's not quite ready for the presidency. They're thinking vice presidency, maybe. Okay. Um, that's but, good. That's helpful on the ground uh, intelligence. Yeah. But um, no, there's a whole bench of, of potential candidates, a really strong bench, which sh- should both give, um, you know, sort of a, a, a good feeling to Democrats and also frustrate them incredibly because there's such a sense that, that Joe Biden is not the choice that a, a lot of Democratic voters want. And so we're, it's, it's this... This really sweet and sour situation that's going on in national politics, and we saw the whiplash this this week like nobody's business. I mean, first there was the absolutely shocking and all right. Let's poll. talk about the shock okay. poll because this is uh, definitely shaped the week. Okay, I and I'm calling it a shock poll. Although I want to point out to our listeners because people have strong.
strong opinions about this New York Times Siena Bowl that came out on Sunday uh, in six battleground states. It showed Donald Trump winning five of the six battleground states. People instantly took sides about this. Is it plausible? Is it possible? How can it be that uh, Biden is showing weaknesses among black Democrats, among the most important voting uh, constituencies in the party, among young voters? And I mean, yet, the I young, will, just I, one I, sec about the young. I just got to say it for people. It was unbelievable. One point. They favored um, Biden by only one point. Okay, go back. I'm sorry, but I just wanted to illustrate just how desperate that was. Right. Well, more broadly, right, I think important to note for people, whether you take stock in any one particular poll of Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Arizona at this moment in time, a couple days later, there was a Bloomberg poll that came out in the battleground states that showed very similar, if not even worse, results for Biden in some areas. And nationally, right now, there's a strong sense if you look at the average of all the polls that have come out, it's you have to you have to say that essentially it looks like one year out, we're talking about a dead heat race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, even with everything that has happened, even at a moment when Donald Trump is almost explicitly running on a campaign of vengeance, retribution, constitution termination, if need be. So we're talking about the abortion issue. But Evan, what should we make of the bigger picture context for Joe Biden and Democrats headed into next year? Do we do we look at the polls? Do we look at the election results? Well, this is one of those moments in which both sides, and I just mean within the Democratic Party, uh, can claim oh, victory the, the here. Oh, phrase, both sides. <laughs> no, within the Democratic Party, meaning that in a sense, you know, in the White House, they're saying, look, this is this demonstrates the event, the, the, the results of this election are what matter. Polls clearly no longer capture this sentiment. This is their view. Uh, you know, to Jane mentioned earlier, and Susan, you, you touched on this key point that the idea that Andy Bashir was running away from Joe Biden during this election is important. In a sense, he did not, um, you know, want to appear together. Um, but remember, that's also something that happened in the 2022 midterms. This was something that Democrats did not want to be very close to Joe Biden because they didn't think it was going to help them. And they did very well. And the White House essentially had to sort of accommodate to that. Look, I think that the, the bottom line here, I'm going to sum it up in one word, which is age, 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 age. How many words is that? (laughs) It's a very short word, so you can say it a lot. (laughs) People think he's not tuned up. He's not ready. He's not able. And it crosses all kinds of lines. I saw a quote from the great James Carville the other day. A columnist called him up and said, what did he think of the shock poll? And he said, well, he's too old. That's what it means. Doesn't mean anything else than that. Jane, what are the other issue (laughs) context, though, here? I mean, we talked about reproductive rights. What, What does the poll tell you in terms of what Biden's vulnerabilities are? Well, there's a tremendous amount of unhappiness about the rate of inflation and the price of groceries and the price of gas. And so the economics is an issue on which Biden amazingly is faring worse than Trump, even though, according to many economists, there are actually tremendously favorable conditions from many standpoints right now, low unemployment, great growth compared to the other countries that have come through the pandemic but but what people feel is is what they see at the grocery store i think and and that's what we're hearing again you know i mean we've talked earlier about 
is it issues or is it personality? And I have a tendency to think that when people are talking to pollsters about Joe Biden, what they're really saying is, I want a better, a different choice. And they're, and it's not really an issue-driven thing so much as, as what Evan's just saying. People are saying, I want somebody younger. I want somebody fresher. Uh, it's They're venting. And the question is whether this is how they'll vote or if this is just sort of a popularity poll and they're saying, I, I, want, I want something different. Well, I think it is an important point, Evan, that uh, the, the surveys have consistently shown this is a message that is being sent by Democratic and independent voters. I think it is very important to remind people again and again that, you know, Joe Biden, it's not like he's gone down in his approval ratings in the polls with Republican voters. They already didn't want him. And, you know, so in in the end, his softness in the polls, and he is at near historic lows in his yeah. approval rating as well as his head-to-head matchup with Donald Trump. He's down to an average of around 39 percent approval. That's really low. There's only one president in American history since polling began that's been consistently at that same level of uh, disapproval. That's Donald Trump, of right. course. So is this a story about Democratic voters being unhappy with Joe Biden? I think this is a story about Americans being unhappy, period. This is, you I know, agree. we have to drill to the very heart of this, which is, and, and Jane, you talked about the economy a moment ago. That is the most interesting disjunction right now. You've got, at the very high level, the data is very clear. I mean, economists are telling you they have not seen this sharp of a disconnect between the underlying facts and the public mood ever. They really have created more jobs than any presidential administration in history. You have very low unemployment. These are the kinds of things that historically historically would matter tremendously for the mood of the country. And yet the reality is that people cannot buy and sell houses right now because the interest rates are too high. They go to the grocery store. They go to the gas station. I know you've heard that a thousand times, but it is at the core of this. And I think the the largest fact, and this is the one that doesn't get as talked about as much, all of this other stuff, whether it's Israel, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the national division, you know, everything that's happening that makes everybody feel terrible shows up in our political answers, particularly when somebody calls you and asks a polling question. There was a great little reference in the Wall Street Journal the other day, which after all is not a great friend of Joe Biden, but had a really smart analysis. They described it as referred pain. In a sense, the pain that we all feel about everything from mass shootings and wars and everything around the world gets, in a sense, funneled through the question that we are asked, which is, what do you think about the guy in charge of the world? I mean, and I think the question, though, is again, I mean, and there was a, a piece in The New York Times um, recently that described this as venting, not voting. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, to some extent, that's what it is. And you, the question is whether will the Democrats fall in line, come out to vote for Joe Biden when it becomes a uh, existential choice between him and potentially Donald Trump? Well, Jane, that is exactly what you're going to hear from the White House. That's their, you know, sort of, hey, chill out. This is just the, you know, the the professional class of bedwetters in the Democratic Party. Angsting. I totally get the need for a certain amount of, let's call it self-soothing in these uh, <laughs> stressful times. But the numbers are the numbers. For me, here's a couple yeah. of interesting data points, because you are hearing, we're in Washington, after all, a lot of backstage grumbling that I would say is outside of the realm of kind of 
Normal grumbling. Normal grumbling. <laughs> oh, it's a and, panic. and second guessing around the polls or not the polls. Right. The reality of the polls is whether you go for any individual one, you are talking about a situation where even by the Biden campaign's own account in a memo they put out, we're looking at a very, very close dead heat race. And interestingly, I have run into in recent weeks uh, both uh, a very, very senior current official in Biden's administration and a very, very senior former uh, Democratic elected official, unprompted. I didn't ask them this question. They both said to me that their biggest beef with Biden and with the campaign right now, and again, one of these people is a very senior current administration official, was Bidenomics. They said that this was a disastrous mistake by the Biden campaign uh, to uh, embrace this label, to campaign on it after months and millions of dollars spent promoting this idea. Uh, not only has his numbers not gone up, but uh, he seems to be associating himself even more with this kind of overall negativity and feeling of angst, Evan, that you were just talking about. Is Bidenomics going to go down in history as a big campaign mistake that you can put directly on the Biden campaign? Let's just say I don't think that it's going to be the major focus of their attention and spending three months from now. Um, there is a reality of sort of I think everybody is accommodating to the fact now that this just hasn't landed. You know, they've tried to explain what they mean when they say oh, Bidenomics, Bidenomics. People say it's a jumbled mess. That's, you know, a quote from a voter the other day. But the bigger challenge for them is really not whether the economic message is landing. The bigger challenge for them is how do you get people to begin to focus on what it would actually mean to be back under a Donald Trump presidency? Well, that's right. What a a good moment to take a break. When we come back, we'll look at that, let's call it that large elephant in the room uh, when it comes to uh, what's going to drive voters for and against Donald J. Trump in 2024. The political scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. Jane, the other day, uh, the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, was uh, quoted as uh, telling a group of people that it's not going to be Bidenomics that's the issue that the Biden campaign is focusing on in 2024. It's going to be two things, one of which we already talked about, Dobbs and the other, democracy, which is, I think, the democratic way of referring to Donald Trump and the threat that he poses to democracy. Is that going to work? It actually has worked quite well in 2022. Um, any place where MAGA and kind of anti-democratic claims that that uh, Trump really won the election was uh, was on the ballot, the um, opponents of that kind of thinking and of that sort of extremist threats to democracy, the opponents won. The most extreme MAGA candidates lost. It actually happened again just in Kentucky. It was a Republican, a statewide official running for re-election who was saying that election deniers were the biggest threat to democracy, not election fraud. Um, he won. He was a Republican who was who was opposing the Trump message. So I actually do think that there is a, a great and strong support for democracy in the United States. Um, and, I, you know, we will, we will see whether those, those voters really come out to vote. You know that the, the MAGA voting, 37 percent behind Trump, seems very motivated to come out to vote. So I, I think this turnout issue is going to be big. And I have to say, I think something else that we haven't really talked about that's important is it may not just be a binary choice between these two at yeah. this point. I mean, we just, you know, we, we, we are watching 
the possibility that you could have a six-way race at this point because we now have the possibility that Joe Manchin, who's not running for re-election mm. in, the, in the Senate, may possibly run on this no-labels ticket. And there, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Jill Stein just got in on Cornel the Cornell West, don't Cornel forget, West. is in there, and I think he's it, it could be So many spoilers. Yes. So yeah. very so many, spoilers. many spoilers. Do you actually think, I mean, you know, Evan, you actually wrote about Joe Manchin, you've you've spent time with the guy on his famous uh, houseboat here in Washington. Is he that much of a spoiler? Would he really run? I, I will tell you, honestly, one thing I know about Joe Manchin, and this is I, I'm completely confident will be true uh, to his last breath. He hates to lose. He hates to lose, really, even more than most politicians. And so if he doesn't think that he has a real way to win the presidency, I think he's going to give this a second thought. One thing he loves is having everybody ask him day in and day out, Joe, are you going to run for president? So, mm. you know, Manchin, remember, the key thing about him was he was a quarterback in high school. And in some ways, mentally, he's still the quarterback. He loves to be at the center of the action. So Joe Manchin is having a, a delicious week from his perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, let's remember, no labels has also indicated recently that they expect to put a Republican at the top of the ticket. So I think it's more plausible that you could end up with somebody like John Huntsman, Larry Hogan, uh, more likely than you would actually with Joe Manchin. Well, if he runs, he's not going to win, but he could uh, play a role in the outcome. That's for sure. So I do think, Jane, to this point that you've just made, which is such an important one about democracy being an issue that that drives Democrats to the polls. We all know that that fear works and there is a great fear. But it's fascinating because Donald Trump, when he himself campaigns and other Republicans campaign, they do this mirror imaging thing. They say, in fact, that Joe Biden is running a police state, that this is the culminating election in our democracy, and that if you don't stop Joe Biden and his sick of radical left, whatever, communist Democrats, that they're going to end democracy in America. So you have a, a, a situation where the core party faithful in both parties think that they're coming out in order to save democracy from an existential threat. I mean, as is always true with Trump, the the, the truest thing he ever says are the things he says in projection, <laughs> which are of what he projects on his opponents. And, you know, there the and this is not just speculation. We now have his plans for a second term. And there've been there's been some terrific reporting in both the New York Times and the Washington Post and Susan's column about what what it is that Trump might do in a second term. And they're laying a blueprint. Project twenty twenty five is the name for one of the sort of uh, groups of plans, which has been drawn up in part by um, conservative think tanks that are working for Trump in that lay out really a blueprint for what he would do um, in terms of taking over the federal government and forcing it to basically become his political tool. By the way, I want to call people's attention to, because if you didn't see it, it's a short clip. And, and I personally think it's really worth watching. Hillary Clinton appeared this week on The View. And, you know, she obviously knows Donald Trump's techniques of uh, mirror imaging, as Jane pointed out, but also uh, his explicit calls to weaponize the federal government and to uh, use basically the tools of the federal government in an explicitly political way. <laughs> Remember, lock her up, lock her up. Well, Clinton, it was a very, it's a short part of her conversation. And I think hmm. she's gotten more attention, actually, for her very lucid explanation of how we got to such a horrible place in, in Israel and Palestine. But it's a short clip where she talks about exactly 
this plan uh, that Jane is mentioning that that Trump and his advisors are developing for the the real weaponization and takeover of the federal government. And she points out, she actually uses the H word. Well, Hitler was duly elected. That's right. Right. And so all of a sudden, somebody with those tendencies, though, dictatorial, authoritarian tendencies would be like, oh, OK, we're going to shut this down. We're going to throw these people in jail. And, and they didn't usually telegraph that. Trump is telling us yes. what he intends yes. to right. do. We need to listen yes. to Take that. him at his word. I think that as we get further along, that the kind of sensory memory that people have, I and mean, we just had this conversation the other night, Sarah Beth and I were at the dinner table, and we said, you know, what would it actually be like if Donald Trump comes back into the White House? And for a moment, we had this kind of this sudden awareness of just what the physical, psychological experience was like. Remember that period where you're sitting there every night, not sure what's going to happen at 11 p.m. when there's going to be some, you know, news breaking. And, <laughs> you're and, giving me a little bit of PTSD well, I, here. I, I don't know. I, mean, I want I, to. <laughs> I mean, I do think that is the challenge for the media now. I think what we have to do yeah. is give people a very clear picture of what this would deliver. And 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 luckily the people around Trump have drawn up a plan. Yeah. And 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 while he was chaotic in the first term and and somewhat hapless, the people around him are very uh focused on basically eliminating all checks and balances, putting in a completely corrupt government where they will use the tools of power to hurt their enemies, help their friends, investigate the people who are their opponents, shut down the press I'm sorry, I, I, I try not to <laughs> go too far, but I, it's pretty hard not to see it as a recipe for fascism. And, and, the, and, and of course, the possibility that was aired in the Washington Post that on day one, Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act and, and, and use the armed forces to put down um, protesters against him is, is it's, it's alarming. <laughs> I also, while we're talking about media, I think it's worth giving a shout out to George Stephanopoulos, who demonstrated something important this week. There was a clip going around you probably saw. Yeah, that's saw. really worth watching. Really interesting. It was him interviewing Steve Scalise. And instead of doing the usual thing where Scalise denies the election and then you eventually move on, he just stayed on it. I asked you a very, very simple question. Now I've asked it, I think, the fifth time that you can't appear to answer. Can you say unequivocally that the 2020 I told election you, was I not told stolen? you there were a handful, there were a handful of, there were a handful of states. And when Scalise refused to tell the truth and say, no, of course this wasn't stolen, that was the end of the interview. That should be in some ways, I think, a model. And by the way, it is such a stark contrast. You briefly mentioned, and it tells you everything, that we this is a week where we're talking about politics and we don't even feel much of a need to talk about uh, a Republican debate that happened this week because <laughs> right. Donald Trump, who is the runaway front runner, didn't participate. But you did mention, Evan, the Republican debate. And to me, it's so telling in contrast to that Stephanopoulos interview, the uh, very first question of that debate to the five candidates who were on the stage was an invitation from Lester Holt essentially to to critique Donald Trump. As far as I know, none of the candidates mentioned uh, the 2020 election denialism and that very purposeful effort to do what no president of the United States has ever done before in our history, which is to seek to overturn the results of a legitimate election. No mention of that at all. And not only that, but for the five candidates basically had the most minor critiques of Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis said, well, he didn't build the wall fully. <laughs> and, you know, Nikki Haley said, oh, he's just not the guy he was in 2016. I mean, you know, it just it just cringeworthy. And these are from people who are allegedly running against Donald Trump. But, Jane, we haven't talked about the one 
other big factor in the election, and this is, talk about an X factor, because it never happened before. It's the fact that Donald Trump is going to be on trial in four criminal cases. We had kind of an early preview this week of what it'll be like to have this split screen testifying in court and campaigning at the same time when Donald Trump showed up in a New York courtroom this week in a civil trial against him. By all reports, it was a hell of a show. Extraordinary situation. I mean, and to go back to the polls first for one sec, when people contemplate the idea of voting for Trump if he were convicted, his his support uh, really falls apart. Huge point. Um, That's so important. And I think it was missed in a lot of the discussion. It's like a six-point difference. I mean, you get this tremendous. So it has an effect. Now, look, these trials are not going to be over by the time that we get to this election. I think that's so important. I think that's the huge. But, I think, but don't underestimate the power of a conviction. Even if this guy's appealing and all this other stuff, if he's been convicted, that is a meaningful event on the calendar that we should think about. Well, I wanted to say something about the this, this trial and these trials in general, which is that what Trump is really doing is trying to put the uh, legal system on trial. He's trying to mm. turn the script around so that it's, it's kind of, um, he, he's saying that the, the process is a fraud. It's not that he's a fraud. And I think this is so important. It's it, we, it, it, We're kind of getting anesthetized to how amazing this is. But this is really the ultimate challenge for what people call the rule of law, the idea that um, in this country, the laws are paramount. It's a country of laws, not men. And Trump has held himself out as always being above the rules, a rule breaker, and that nobody can tame him. And what we're watching is that the legal system basically makes him sit still, be quiet, play by the rules. He reportedly is furious about it. Um, But so far, he's had to go along with the legal system. He's arguing about it every time there's a break. He comes out and screams about it, goes on on, on social media. But but we're going to see this over and over again. And I think it's the ultimate cage fight between a would-be dictator and the rule of law. And, and I, I just want to say one other thing, which is I went to a fascinating um, kickoff for a, a group of conservative lawyers this week. Um, they call them the, themselves the Society for the rule of law. And they are, um, many of them, former members of the Federalist Society, uh, lawyers who had high places in Republican administrations, who see Trump as um, anathema to the whole idea of, of, of our democratic mm. system. And, and they're going to do everything they can to sort of spread the word. And they, they, the worry is that ordinary people don't really grasp the, the threat that Trump is. You don't have to be, you shouldn't have to be a lawyer to understand that we want a kind of a justice system where everybody has to play by the rules and there's equal justice for all, whether you're a billionaire real estate former president or some guy down the block. You know, equal justice for all, it's such a lofty notion. And then I come back to this incredible, unseemly spectacle, Jane, that you pointed out in the judge's courtroom. There was one moment, Evan, when the the New York state judge, Angeron, he says to Trump's lawyer, I beseech you, (laughs) I beseech you, (laughs) can't you control your client? And I thought, you know, right now at that moment, that judge 
is is all of us. Yes, I think. And you know who is also on some level all of us right now is Ivanka Trump, who is desperately trying to, in a sense, pretend as if she's never met this guy. I mean, it was kind of fascinating to see the degree to which she is in this kind of desperate salvage effort for her reputation. Right. Shorter version of her testimony, I don't recall. Don I who? don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. But... Oh, my goodness, guys, it's one year still to go, one year to go. And every week we're going to be back here. <sighs> Tell me something. You guys are always saying I'm the, you know, the <laughs> pessimist and whatever. But, you know, I would like each of you tell me tell me something that's going to get me through this this next year without <laughs> uh, absolutely collapsing. There will be surprises. There will be – you cannot predict at this point a year out. And I, that, that much, I guarantee you. And I think that in the end, people are not going to be simply deciding whether to put Joe Biden into office for four more years. They're deciding fundamentally whether to put Donald Trump back into office. And I, I think you cannot underestimate how powerful that psychological force is going to be when push comes to shove. Well, I personally am looking forward maybe uh, – overly optimistically, to the night of January 20th, 2025, when one way or the other, maybe we can get some sleep. In the meantime, that's it for this week in the political scene. Evan, Jane, thank you so much. Great to be with you both. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening.